On this episode of China Unscripted, a tell-all book into how business is really done in China. The Chinese Communist Party does not want you to read it. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesha. And joining us today is Desmond Shum, author of the new book Red Roulette, an inside story of wealth, power, corruption, and vengeance in today's China. Desmond and his ex-wife Whitney Duan did business with the highest levels of the Communist Party elite. Until one day in 2017, the party disappeared Whitney with no explanation. Desmond's book talks about their rise and fall and exposes China's hidden corruption. Uh, Desmond, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So Desmond, your new book, uh, your new memoir, uh, Red Roulette, just came out. Um, why do you think the Chinese Communist Party is so afraid of the book? I think it's uh, the first time, I mean, really it's the first time somebody have that intimate con- interaction with them actually come out to tell a story. So, you know, same as your program, I'm script a story by the CCP, right? Yeah. Well, you, you were, you had like firsthand knowledge and you, you were there as, you know, the West kind of, uh, the whole economic buildup of China. You saw that all happening. Right. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think one of the things interesting is, uh, you know, as I have said, you know, my rise, uh, mirror the rise of China. Well, and on that topic, I know, uh, the Chinese Communist Party put a lot of pressure on you to make sure or to try and convince you not to publish this book. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, the Friday before, uh, Wall Street Journal and uh, Financial Times both published a story on my uh, on her situation and of my upcoming book. On your your ex-wife? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Whitney's situation and, uh, and my upcoming book. And then she called me, I got, you know, I got a call. She, she called my cousin and then she called my mom because it was middle of night on um, Sunday morning. So the two of them uh, text me and say, well, Whitney called them and asked me to call her back. So that was... Uh, Which was unusual because the Communist Party had detained your ex-wife. How, how many years ago was that? Four years ago. I actually, I picked the publishing day of my book uh you know, to, to be on the anniversary of um, of her fourth year's uh, disappearance. Yeah. Why did they detain her again? Nobody knows. They never, Nobody they knows. actually even never acknowledged they have taken her. So her parents, I mean, I came in touch with her parents. I mean, her parents, you know, never, never heard a word of them from the government. I keep telling them, you know, you should maybe try to go to the police, just say, well, we have a missing person and see what's the reaction. But they were they were too afraid. They were too afraid. They didn't ever go to the police. And her mom, like, rang her phone every day. And and um, you know, obviously the phone line was dead. So she just disappears, no explanation. And and you two have a a young son uh, who was eight years old at the time, I believe. Right. You haven't heard anything from her. Nobody has. Nobody has. Yeah. Until now, right before. Your book gets released. That's right. What did she say to you? Well, she, she first, I mean, first she actually, we, I, you know, asked her to talk to my son. It was uh, six o'clock in the morning. I wake up very early, like 5.30. I, I call her at six. So I first asked her to speak to my, you know, speak to our son because and I wake him up. You know, 
so he hasn't he hasn't um, heard from her for four years. Uh, mm-hmm. So that was that was a bit, you know, that was a touching moment actually. She was asking him, "How tall are you? What's your weight now? Um, how are you doing in school?" And then and then afterwards, she asked to speak to me separately. And um, and then she was um, she asked me to cancel the book launch. Uh, um, she, you know, it's on Tuesday and, but that was Sunday. Uh, and then she was, uh, she asked me to, you know, cancel the book launch. Did, did she say why she wanted you to cancel it? No, no, she didn't say why. I know, um, she did just say, you know, I should cancel it. I wonder how she heard about that book in the four years she was disappeared for. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm sure, you know, I'm actually surprised the bureau, I mean, that's two things kind of, one is stupid and one is surprised. Uh, stupid part is like, you know, some bureaucrats just in Beijing, they might, they must imagine that, you know, you can disappear the book like China, right? In a snap of a finger, books are coming off the bookshelf across China. I mean, you know, on by, you, you call me on Sunday, the book's supposed to come out on Tuesday. Now, the books are already in the bookstore or on the way to bookstore. Even I want to do anything, it's beyond my hand. So it's uh, it's kind of ridiculous to even make that request. And then surprise is uh, I'm, I mean, you know, looking back, I'm just really surprising. They are, you know, for once they're acting so so quick, you know, so efficiently, you know, the, the articles come on Tuesday, uh, on Friday, and then should appear within a day. Yeah, I mean, if you could have pulled the book, would you have? No, no, I wouldn't. I mean, it, I didn't start the book uh, for, for publishing. I mean, I, I started a book a year after her disappearance uh, as a gift uh, for my son. Mm. And I wasn't thinking of publishing it because, uh, you know, it was I know how personally costly it will be, you know, if I publish something like that. So I was just writing a book because my son was, you know, getting nine years old. He didn't go online. He searched, you know, he searched about his mom because she wanted to know who she is, what she had done, why she has been disappeared. So that was that, you know, so so I said, well, instead of you getting all the rumors on off, you know, on off the internet, let me give you um, give you a gift. That's uh, my account of uh, who we are and what we have done. And then in my view, it's, uh, you know, you can stand up tall and nothing to be ashamed of. That was my starting point of writing the, uh, the book. Well, what was the story you wanted to tell your son in, in the book? I was, uh, I would just, you know, I think I, I would just want to say, you know, say things I see it, say things what I experience and what, you know, I just laid it all out as you probably, I know, you have, as you have read the book and you, you know, I'm, I'm not really making a, a, you know, accusation on, you know, this and that. You know, I'm just saying this is what happened. This is what I done. This is what I saw. This is what I experienced. This is what I feel at the time. And clearly yeah. that really threatens the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, apparently so. Yeah. Now, you had said uh, earlier that your rise mirrored the Communist Party's financial rise. Uh, could you explain a bit about uh what you mean by that and, and some of the specific experiences that you've had over the last couple of decades in China? I think, you know, I went to, I, I went to um, China, start traveling to China in the early 90s. And, you know, I was the first batch of uh, private equity professionals uh, going to China. I was working for a U.S. firm. 
And at the time, I remember, you know, I was uh, we were mostly investing in foreign company uh, going to China, um, and then we were trying to invest into private enter- enterprises in China. But at the time, it's tiny. All the companies are tiny. I mean, in the early '90s, you know, if they do like a couple millions in revenue, a private company, that's that's considered sizable, uh, you know, sizable companies. And today, obviously, you know, you, you know, look, you look at you know. Uh, Evergrande, right? <laughs> You're talking about two, what, two trillion RMB, so what, 300 million of uh, debt, right? Right, 300 billion. Yeah, it's a really 300 billion of uh, debt. It's just a very different scale now, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's interesting is that I know as you were doing business in China, you were actually pretty well politically connected. Yeah, well, it, it all st- I mean, I feel, when I first started, I wasn't. I was just, you know, I was uh, just uh, this uh, foreign educated kids from Hong Kong coming back to the homeland and then trying to do something. And uh, I moved to Beijing in 97. The, the, the company, uh, the U.S. company actually moved me to Beijing to run their office uh, in, in Beijing and Shanghai. And, uh, and I, I, I left the company in 2000 and I sort of tried my hand in the entrepreneurial rank. And um, it's after meet, meeting uh, Whitney, um, that's, that's when, you know, I sort of seeing, seeing what's behind the curtain and behind the doors. You know, by, by the time I met her, I had been running around in China for 10 years, right? I mean, I've been, you know, doing business in China for 10 years. I mean, we did not small deals, right? I mean, we, we invest, I, you know, we, I was involved in the first uh, internet it's, it's still listed. Uh, it's the first Chinese tech company listed on NASDAQ. And I was invest, uh, you know, I was, uh, I was uh, uh, involved in that. So, I mean, I have plenty of experience doing business in China by that time. But until I met her, I, you know, I mean, as I lay out in the book, I mean, I don't really know how to speak to this group of people. I mean, they have a lot of code languages. Uh, I don't really know how to behave. You know, I was, you know, I was behaving just like, you know, a regular person would behave in a, in a, in a free world. But actually you go into a room with this group of people, everything changed. You, you, you speak a different kind of language. You sit differently. You, 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 you know, you behave differently. You know, you knock your wine glasses differently with them. It's, it's an entire different experience. And then until somebody sort of introduced you to, to that world and guide you along the process, you wouldn't able to do it. Where do you think that different behavior comes from? It comes from, I think the, well, the, I believe is the, the, the communist party is a very hierarchical society and, and a structure. Everything by go by political power. And then every rank has a different level of political power. And then it's paying respect to their power. What's an example of that? Like a simple thing, it's like in the Chinese society in general, you will say, well, the elderly are the respected person, right? Like a family gathering, you will have the elderly sitting at the top of the table, right? I mean, that's just Chinese culture. But you go into that room, let's say you have 10 people, din- no, 10 pe- 10 person dinner. The seating is basically go according to the ranking. And it's very, very specific. Everybody know where exactly they should sit. Then, then you have like, you know, a couple of people sort of being uh, modest, the, the lower ranking officials uh, being modest and then trying to fight for the last seat. 
say the, mm. the, the most humble seat, so to speak, around the round table. And then you have that, but everybody know who should sit on which seat. So it's kind of like a subversion of traditional Chinese culture. It's then now based on Communist Party hierarchy and ranking. Yeah, yeah. I know people talk a lot about uh, how important guanxi is in business dealings in China, uh, relationships. What's What was your experience with that? It is... Uh it is, I mean, it is shocking. And then in a way, in shocking, it is, is how, what actually does that mean? How that guanxi is actually built? Because you got a lot of people, you know, you know, foreigners coming to China claiming they have quote unquote guanxi with this and that. And then you have this, uh, you know, Hong Kong people coming to China and that they have guanxi with this and that, you know, and then to an average person, it's, you know, it's just like, Oh, okay. Yeah, he has a photo shot uh, with that person. Oh, yeah, he, he actually went to the dinner with that person, and they assume that's some kind of guanxi. It's actually absolutely not. You know, if you see in the book, I mean, it is very, very different type of relationship. You know, in a way, to build guanxi with power, you need to submerge your humanity. You need to put yourself down to 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 serve that person at the top. And, and then you're trying to anticipate their wishes and, and then do better than the next guy who is also trying to uh, curry favor from, the, from that person. So it is a very humbling experience to say the least. It sounds very dehumanizing. It is very dehumanized. There's no such a thing as like human to human. <laughs> wow, so like how, how do people have to sacrifice their humanity for this? You put other person's interests ahead of yourself in all situation. You're trying to anticipate what would they possibly like, and you get there and prepare for them before they ever arrive. And then you know, and then it is it's not just that person, it's or everybody, you know, that person may be like his son-in-law, okay, or his son, you know, is like, okay, that his son wants to get to uh you know, um, just came back. Let's say, give example. Like the son that just, uh, or the daughter just uh, went to Western education, went to Harvard, just came back. Ah, and then you're trying to, that's a 20 something year old, right? And, and, and then you're trying to build a relationship with that person because you know, if you do that and help that, uh, that boy or the girl, the, 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 his father gonna, his kind of father gonna like it. So you're gonna like, have coffee that person with their kid and it's like, oh, what do you want? Oh, you want to get into a PE firm. Let me find you a job in a PE firm. Oh, maybe you want to, you know, two years from now, you want to build a PE firm by yourself. Maybe let, let us help you. You know, it's like all of those things. It's, uh, you know, it's this kind of, this kind of things is, they call it, that's the real guanxi. It's like a completely different type of relationship, is it? You're trying to sort of, sort of like merge into their family, right? Yeah. Well, it's it's funny because I could see that actually ending up making the business environment in China much worse. Like if you're constantly hiring people who aren't actually knowledgeable or skilled, just hiring them because of their connections, that would result in people being in positions of power that shouldn't be there. Well, you you know, those that's like a, a course of doing business. You build in, you know, redundancy and then you have another per, you hire another person to do the real job. Got it. 
Yeah, remember that whole uh, was it J.P. Morgan a few years ago that had that scandal with like just hiring a bunch of princes? Oh, the, the sons and daughters program. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, maybe that was a little too blatant. Yeah, and then they got in, them in trouble. But from what you're saying, this is basically how it how it works, right? That's ex- that's that's how it works. I mean, you know, J.P. Morgan. Let's say they want to get a get into IPO uh, sponsorship uh, with a major state-owned enterprise. That son and daughter can call on his parents or his uncles and say, "Well, get me, you know, get me a meeting with the CEO of the state enterprise. Uh, my boss wants to meet that guy." And that's a meeting. That's a meeting that you know other bankers wouldn't be able to do. And that's what you're paying the kids for. <laughs> you mentioned in the book uh, that Whitney, your ex-wife, really learned how to build these kinds of relationships and how to kind of handle and deal with Chinese officials pretty early on. How, how did she get that experience? And and what did she do that kind of led to her like really rapid rise uh, in Chinese business? I think, you know, as many things in life, you, a lot of coincidence and it happens together and then you, you, you mix us, mix up, it, it comes together and it becomes something else uh, at the end of it. She, she came from a very, very humble background. I mean, I came from a humble background. My parents are both secondary teachers. I mean, her situation even worse. I mean, she come from basically a uh, uh, countryside in Shandong. And she, her parents didn't believe she can get into university. They sent her to a vacation school to be a, a car repairing, uh, repairing mechanic. And then she, she believed she can do it. She studied uh, on her own. Um, and then took the exam twice, the the, the, the school entrance, uh, university entrance exam twice, and get into the university. And what happened afterward is really prepare her, you know, for for what happened, you know, for what happened twenty years later. Is she, you know, she was a star student in a university. She graduated top of the class, and then the university asked her to stay and become a secretary to the president of the university. And that's a military, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a university um, related to the military. So she very on gets, you know, accompanying the, the president of the university, see, meeting with the, you know, seeing how uh, meeting are done at the senior um, uh, official level. And then, and then from there, she, she, was, she got seconded to, um, to be a, a junior bureaucrat in the county. So she spent, I think, two, three years there. And at that level, uh, at that situation, she get to see how sort of most, um, you know, how, how, the, how the system work at the bottom, right? I mean, the county level, how the official relate to each other, how things actually get done on the ground. And uh, in her situation, the head of the county actually was uh, arrested for corruption and a lot of backstabbing, uh, according to the story she told me. And then she just got really uh, disappointed and disillusioned by the by how the, how the system actually works and, and how corrupt it is. And then and then she decided she wanted to try her luck in a commercial work. And then she she start her career with uh, again a, a real estate development company uh, belongs to the military in the nineties. Um, military engaged in you know all sort of uh, commercial activities because the the state was bankrupt. Uh, the military was making money just to support themselves. So from that level, she also you know sh- uh, she also get to you know one you should 
get to learn about real estate development. The other thing is uh, how the state-owned enterprises work. So all those experience come together so enable her to hone her skill in you know networking at a more senior level in Beijing a decade later. Well, it's interesting how you kind of talk about how she had to learn how Guanxi works within the context of the Chinese Communist Party, because that kind of flies in the face of the idea that like, oh, this is something from traditional Chinese culture. It's it's obviously not. It's something that you have to learn, even if you are a person from mainland China. It's something really just awful and foreign that's kind of forced upon you. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is. It exists in the context of Chinese culture, but it's very. It has a. It's a, it's a completely different thing. It's peculiar in in its own on its own sense. Um, you know, so it has a background and context of the Chinese culture, but it has been twisted to fit the system. And so it must be very challenging for any kind of foreign businessman coming into this environment, even coming from Hong Kong. Oh yeah, coming yeah. into this environment trying to figure out how this game is played. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean that's. That's why you know I've, I I believe the book will be very interesting for somebody even you know it just just you know if somebody want to do business in China in today you know you know now I'll show you how the game is actually played. <laughs> well, that's 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 the key. So the, the the big thing is like you were saying that back in the day you know a lot of uh, the PLA controlled a lot of the businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so basically from like you know the nineties two thousands there was a sudden uh, swell of so-called private Chinese companies. Mm-hmm. Um, but r- really, what is, how private can any company be in China? Yeah, I think, I think it's very, um, you know, we, we, a lot of times the West and, and use the same term on a Chinese company and the Chinese use the same term as the West on, on the, their own situation Actually, they are referring to very, very different things. Uh, I think the West is uh, uh, some some sort of naivety because the calling, the, na- the name, the, the calling sounds the same, and it must be the same thing. And uh, and the Chinese actually, I think that is a there is a part on the Chinese of I would say intentional m- misrepresenting. Uh, uh, so you know. As you just saying that a private enterprise, what what's so private about a Chinese company? None. Of, I mean, the, 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 we're, we're in the in the eye of the party, you all belong to the state, and a conscious and subconscious level, all entrepreneur is aware of their risk. And when you started running your own private equity in the the early two thousands, right? No, uh, no. Nineties, so like I mean, well, nineties with the U.S. company, and I will go on our own after two thousand. Yeah, so like when you started going on your own, what was your awareness like? Did you feel like you were starting a totally private company, and then realized that it couldn't be private, or was there some other uh, like change in your understanding? Uh, you, it, it, I was getting my introduction of uh, the the real practice of uh, of uh, China. You know. It's, I, at the time when I first started at the beginning of it, I was doing a telecom software company. And then you're starting uh, to deal with the, the officials in the, this uh, state-owned uh, telecom companies. 
And um, you, you're starting to get an education of, okay, this is how things are done. Mm. But you were like you were coming into China essentially as a as an outsider, yeah. right? Yes. But the Communist Party, in their view, your telecom company still belonged to the state at some level, right? In their view. In their view, is you are private as long as long I allow you. And 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 if I need to, let's say, conscript you for the course of the state, that's just a snap of finger and a decision on my part. So you have to do it, otherwise you get, what, shut down? No, they just replace you with somebody else. Or you can be disappeared. Clearly that's an option. Obviously. I mean, when you, when you started getting into real estate development, yeah. This is something that's interesting to me because so much of the wealth in China now is like built on real estate development. And I think a lot of people don't really understand how that works. Could you explain to us a little bit about how how like that kind of real estate transaction works? What's the role of these Chinese Communist Party officials uh, and their families in this? Well, first of all, I think real estate—you know—it's a—it's a peculiar asset class in the situation in China, which is very different from the rest of the world. I mean, the rest of the world—you have all sort of financial assets to put your savings and uh, your, your incomes into. But in China, essentially, because the stock the stock market has been so volatile, is you know, and then it's not really—you know—it doesn't—it's not related to fundamental analysis. It's so volatile, it's completely policy-driven, and there are so many crashes uh, happened in the past. The, the general public just don't want that money to put into the stock market. And then, then China doesn't really have a, have a debt market to say. And so, so what happened was that almost all uh, individuals you know, put their money into real estate you know, because that's only asset class that's widely available. And then so... So, so real estate becomes, you know, almost like a, a mechanism for people to save their deposit, to save their money, and then, you know, almost like a deposit. So, so, so in that sense, a real estate is a very, very different asset class. It's from from the West rest of the world. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, as a developer, I mean, it is an industry that has um, that is heavy, heavily regulated. You know, I, in a book I gave example. Uh, I did my project. I need 157 uh, seal approval just to complete that project. And each seal approval, it comes from one bureaucrat. And I, and every one of them I need to work on. So it's a, it's a very, very um, heavy regulated project. And then it's, uh, it's completely at the sort of at the form of the government uh, in many cases. But like to get those 157, mm-hmm. you know, official seals, what do you have to do? You have to, you know, as I said, you know, you have to submit yourself to to the power in front of you. You know, I gave example, you know, I I need to drink a bottle of Mao Tai every, every meal for like, you know, for years. A bottle? Yeah, that's uh, like half a liter. How did you survive? <laughs> A uh, half a liter, fifty-three percent proof uh, liquor, and then I have, you know, I have a team of uh, um, employees. They do nothing but to entertain, uh, serve, 
uh, those are bureaucrats. That's just uh, the way it is for us. That's that's incredible. Well, I know uh, you mentioned, I think, in your book that uh, 2008 was a was a year that you felt things changed. What happened? Yeah. I, 2008, I think, really has is a watershed uh, moment for 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 China. I think what happened was, um, I think, before eight, before the the financial crisis, there was a lot of uh, um, the debate in the society at large, and uh, very often at the top, uh, at the top, at the leadership level, is not about whether we want to be like the West or, you know, we, we're going to grow the route of rest, uh, where the model, you know, copy the web model of the West or not. It's more about uh, at what pace are we going to, you know. Uh, uh, Go along on their route, and and the financial crisis really really changed that. I think from that moment, society at large and also the leadership definitely is looking at it and say, well, look at the entire world; they are crashed and burning. And look at us; we are doing well. And then, if not for us holding the exchange rate, the RMB exchange rate steady, Asia would have gone down. So. You know, we are sort of the savior of the world in a, in a sense, and also they then they they revalue the situation. They say, well, maybe the more West model is not that great at all, and then maybe our model is not that bad. Uh, so so that really changed the perception, uh, the belief of how they look at the West and how they look at their own uh, uh, development and economic model. And another part of it is um, their view of the state-owned enterprise. In the past, it always has been um, let's retrench the inefficient uh, state-owned enterprise and let the private enterprise and the foreign company advance in the economy. And so that's the general sense of that. But but the financial crisis really because at that moment they say, well, okay, you know, I want to. You know, inject another four hundred billion into the economy, and I would do it. And then, the, the more obviously, the most, the quickest way to do it is through the state owned enterprise, because the state owned enterprise basically, you know, they say, well, okay, I, I'm gonna, the bank's gonna give you a hundred million tomorrow, and then in a week you're gonna start spending that hundred million, right? They can give direct orders like that, and and then and this private enterprise you cannot, right? You have to, you have to. Sort of, you know, put out policies, roundabout encouragement, you know, encourage company to invest and all that. It's a very different way of management, right? So, so they say, well, okay, well, maybe you know, it's very important. It is very important for us to keep uh, that state-owned enterprise have, having a central in the economy because we can actually direct them at the snap of a finger. So, so, so all this come together, and then always, you know, underneath all of that. The bureaucracies always have a tendency, have an urge to exert their influence, exert their power, right? I mean, if a bureaucrat, and now I'm sitting in ministry, all I do is uh, look, you know, directing, you know, helping sort of the private enterprise to advance. What's my power? Where's my power? The moment they say, well, but tomorrow onward, you have, you know, you have two, two state owned enterprise under your direction, and then you can direct them how to spend 500 million. Hey man, he's all for it. He's all for it. So that's all, the, the the system always baking has this urge to assert yourself uh, in the economy. So so all that you know, so all that come together, you know. So you know, after the financial crisis, things really start changing. 
So basically, it went from a sort of shadowy control of the Chinese Communist Party over private enterprises to just more direct party control. Uh, yeah, I think it went from uh, reluctantly letting you guys grow to the say to the to to a state of like, okay, I'm gonna reassert myself. You guys gonna come on. Uh, you know, you guys need to retreat. You know, get put put in a retreat. You guys should should step back a bit. Yeah. You had an interesting anecdote about um, having a party secretary in your company, right? Could you could you tell us about that? Yeah, after the financial crisis, they uh, never before. I mean, they they start. You know, I have a joint venture with the state enterprise. So, although I'm the majority shareholder, and then I was the CEO, they requested that I put in a party apparatus. Requested? Well, I mean, how can you say no, right? I mean, what yeah, kind of yeah. like? And and then they put in up your apparatus, and then they appointed a party secretary to my company. And then, and all of a sudden, I need to, you know, I need his consent uh, on many, many corporate matters, and they change dynamic of uh, management. Yeah. Well, what are some specific uh, business decisions that you had to make differently than you would have otherwise because of pressure from the party secretary? Everything. I mean, everything. I mean, he, you know, I need to cons uh, consult with him on everything because, you you know, you, although he doesn't have an official title to, to be the manager of the company, you like, you know, you, ups, you know, he, 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 you upset him and he's going to run back to his, uh, his, uh, his, uh, you know, his uh, superior and then he's going to create, create trouble for me, you know, in a, in a, and then, then you know, so, so we're trying to, sort of make it almost like a, a not a co-CEO per se, but at least a junior co-CEO. Hmm. And so like you had to develop this relationship with him as well to just make friends with him, right? And make sure that he, yeah, you know, he was yeah, agreed with you. Um, geez, that's, I just can't imagine having that like, like in our small company, I'm just imagining like the U.S. government or like one political party says like, oh, you have to now have this person deciding like what episodes you're going to produce or what topics you're going to cover. Like that's insane to me. Uh, but it sounds like that's just the norm of what happens in China. Yes. Well, that and bottles of Motai. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Uh, I, you know, how does um how does the party apparatus kind of how does how do the families of party officials come into this? Like we talked a little bit about, you know, the private equity having to hire like the sons and daughters of Chinese officials. Right. Um, like how much of the wealth is is in family members of the Communist Party? What happened is basically, you know, some of the family actually designed in such a way. I mean, I call it, a, you know, I call it a red aristocrats uh, in my in my book, and then it's called by bloodline in like the medieval, you know, aristocrats, and they they some of the family actually designed in such a way. So one um, like the daughter going to the private business or going to run the business, and the son going to political system. So the, the, the family has uh, one leg on each side of the game. And, and then a lot of times, I mean, so, so to your question, I think every government official or every, 
Yeah, every bureaucrat has their finger in some pot. You know, I, um, I remember like 30 years ago when I started doing business in China, we, you used to have this joke. Uh, you line up, you know, China has a quote-unquote very stringent punishment for corrupt officials, right? So like 30 <laughs> years ago, we have this joke, like you line up all the Communist Party members against the wall, you shoot them one after another, you're shooting too few of them. You're missing a whole bunch of corrupt officials. But you shoot every one of them, you're probably shooting a, a few too many because uh, some of them actually may not be corrupt. But, you know, by that, by, by the party standard, you know, today's world, you shoot all the 95 million members, I don't think anybody will be mistaken. Wow. Uh, sounds like a very, very functional system. You know, that has been the way it is. This is why, you know, Xi Jinping's so-called anti-corruption campaign, and I think the Western media often frame it as going after corruption. But basically, if every party member is corrupt, then clearly this has his campaign has nothing to do with corruption and merely he's using corruption as like a legal tool to go after the specific people he wants to go after. I, feel, I think I have a few things to say. One is uh, his starting point when he started this is definitely a political uh, cleansing program to assert his power and grab power uh, from from different fashions and from, from possible political rivals. That's definitely a starting point. Some of those did try to do a coup against him. So, yeah. And then, but he also, I do believe he does want to have a cleanse of the system to us at, the, at sort of the junior level, so to speak, right? But if you look at the history of 70 years of, of Communist Party, this kind of campaign has been going, you know, having recycled itself and re, every every few, you know, every few years, every few, you know, couple, every decade or two. It has always, you know, has this, but it never, it never has a lasting effect because the structure of this is baked into the system. Like, just give you an example, you know, the Centennial Party celebration, right? Um, uh, celebrating the, the Communist Party, the, the CCP's 100 years anniversary. And a lot of reports that about this seven busload of uh, red arrows crack went on to Tiananmen Square and stand, stand beside Xi Jinping and watched the parade, right? That seven busload, they are the cream of the cup of the red arrows crack. They have, if you look at them, they have no official title. They are just supposedly quote-unquote, average citizen. They have no specific contribution you can name to the city, to the society, or to the country. The only reason they can go on top of the Tiananmen Square and stand next to the party chairman and the president of China as he almost equals is the by bloodline. The only reason they got that they, they have this kind of position is the bloodline. So they are the, you know, the true... You know, I actually would call them the, the true owner of China. You know, a lot of people, you know, have this say, oh, Communist Party this and party, a Communist Party that. Communist Party is made by people. And these are the people who actually own the Communist Party. It's, in, it's interesting. Like, you really frame it as, like, just systemic corruption within China, within the Chinese Communist Party. I think I know why they didn't want you to publish your book. Go ahead. Well, for all of that. <laughs> well, I mean, I think there is something really 
you know, like you said, nobody's kind of shown the nitty gritty of how how to do business in China and how it works, especially from, you know, the real estate side and talking about having to, uh, you know, develop these relationships with all these officials and what you have to do to get your 157 chops or your, your seals, right? Like, it's really interesting because I think there's still this naivety from, um, you know, American businesses um, entire industries who go into China and they're like, oh, well, we're just going to like, you know, first it was, you know, this industry, then it was, you know, like manufacturing, then, you know, uh, private equity, now Hollywood. Now, like, you know, it's just like wave after wave of these companies being like, oh, we can we can do it. It's, it's just going to be easy. Uh, and then kind of coming. But like nobody talks about what it's actually like because they don't want to harm their chances of doing business in China. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Although, you know, maybe I can look at your book as like a, a how-to guide, because now I know how to do business in China. All I have to do is sacrifice my humanity, uh, develop relationships with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of party officials and make friends with their children, drink enormous amounts of uh, Mo Thai liquor uh, until I'm almost dead, and, and, and I feel then I'll make it. That's a very good uh, go-to guy, you know, to, and it actually works. But the point, but I feel like the point of your book is it doesn't matter even if you do all of that, if you do all of the right things, mm -hmm. it's still going to come back to bite you because maybe the people you are developing Guanxi with, they're in power now, but maybe someday in the future, a rival faction is in power, and then suddenly you're on the outs because you're connected to the wrong people. So you're saying I should have read his book to the end. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's why I mean we you know we sort of we 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 every entrepreneur in China know the game they are playing is extremely risky and the risk is not you know nothing to do with it's not business risk it's completely political and you know just mm -hmm. just my employees you know a middle class employee does the moment they start having some cash they open an account in Hong Kong and stash some mm -hmm. some of that away. And then uh, the bigger your business, the more you stack your way because you say, well, there's a lot of risk inherent, there's a lot of political risk inherent in this system. I don't know when they're going to, you know, take away my, my private property. Let's stash them away off, off, you know, stash them away far away from the, the hand of the CCP. So how much of this wealth is ending up outside of China and like invested in the U.S. in real estate or other businesses? I wouldn't know the number, but it's a tremendous amount. How about you yourself when you were started to make a lot of money in China? Yeah, yeah, I, I know. I showed it in the book. You know, one of the uh, conflict points between me and my ex-wife was how much we should, you know, diversify away from China. She believed China has a brighter future. We should concentrate our bets. And I have a, I have a different view. So that that's one of the fiction point of our marriage. I think that's one of the sad things about the story of your of your ex-wife is that, you know, she obviously was a very motivated person. She obviously cared a lot about China, tried to rise up through the political ranks, thought that was corrupt. It like she seemed like she really like you would think a normal government would like somebody like that. Instead, she ends up disappeared. I think yeah, I think that's one of the saddest part of uh, you know our experience is we really you know if I may use the word patriotic we really want to build something uh, 
with China and for China. You know, we, you know, uh, as I, you know, talk about in the book, uh, very early on, early 2000s, when we first start making some serious money, we start going to charity. I mean, in China, charity, there's no tax credit for it. I mean, it's a direct deduction of your net worth. And, and we have been over the years, you know, sponsor academics. We give the library to Tsinghua. You know, uh, to my knowledge today, I'm still an honorary trustee of Tsinghua University. And then we really want to, you know, help China, build China. And this is what we end up with. And this is just, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a lesson for a lot of people, I think. When was the moment that you became disillusioned? I think it's two, three years under, uh, into Xi Jinping's first term. So it's 2014. Well, I mean, you know, it starts earlier than that. It starts, you know, when, you know, I talk about the party apparatus, the party, you know, eventually that, you know, I sold that company. And one of the main reasons I sell that company is just, it's just unmanageable. You can, you can run a business like in that kind of situation. And then I may as well get some money out and then let's do something else. So I'm starting to have a, second thoughts about this path we are on. And then you look at Xi Jinping's situation, you know, I remember uh, vividly, I think the first year uh, uh, in uh, his administration, I, I'm a member, I was a member of, you know, CCPCC or something like that, you know, the political consultative party. I went to, a, um, they call a, a, a meeting uh, with many of us. And then essentially they, they said, well, okay, Political consultative, you know, supposedly there's a very prestigious uh, 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 political setup. I mean, Jackie Chan is in it. Uh, we supposed to advise and sit on, you know, advise the government or whatever. But basically, he's saying that, you know, basically democracy is not on the agenda by any means. <laughs> Essentially, mm-hmm. that's what he's saying. And then you listen to that, you're like, whoa, whoa, I thought we are going that way. Obviously, that door is shut and permanently shut. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, it's interesting that you were on the CPPCC, the Chinese People's Political Consultative uh, yeah, Conference. Yeah. Council? Yeah. Conference. 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 A lot of acronyms. Uh, yes. So, but, but, but you're the only person we've ever had on our show that was in the CPPCC. So, what is that like? We are voting machines. Why? <laughs> You go in there and everything passed by, you know, let's say you have six, about like you know, 600 something members. Everything, you know, you have maybe two or three absentee votes and then the rest is all agree, right? It's just like a motion comes up, you raise your hand. A motion comes up, you raise your hand. It's just a voting machine. <laughs> How do you all get so unified? <laughs> well, because they, they, yeah. they structure the meeting and conference voting in such a way. So... Every time, you know, a motion comes up, they say, okay, if you agree, raise your hand, right? It's a public vote. If you disagree, you raise your hand. It's like, hey, man, they're looking at you. Who's going to disagree, right? And then there are a few things in a year that say supposedly secret ballot. But they make sure everybody has line, is a line, is, is a fixed lineup. You know, it's like one lineup, uh, you know, you, you cannot say, well, I'm going to vote first. That's no such a thing. You're going to line up to the next guy, the, the guy, bef- uh, you know, and then you must vote after he has voted. Then, you know, they can retrace it back to you, whatever you're going to vote on. 
right? So, mm-hmm. so essentially, your your vote is open to the party to look at and examine. And then, if you say no, well, you know what's going to come down next. Yeah. So, besides the uh, you know being told what to vote, I mean, are there other like um, privileges or uh, you know? I guess what were the downsides like? of of being in the CPPCC? What were the parties like? Is yeah, that <laughs> the parties. A lot, lot of motai, I believe. It's more like a. It's more like a social prestige, you know. So mm-hmm. you are like a recognized person of the society by the party. It's more like that, mm-hmm. and that's a lot of. Uh, I mean, I belong to the, the the Hong Kong group, and a lot of Hong Kong people in general actually don't understand the game very well. And a lot of them, they thought, you know, getting into that, that will actually give, enable them to make one sheet. It's like, yeah, well, <laughs> you don't know what game you're playing. Did you meet Jackie Chan? <laughs> or Yao Ming? No, 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 no. You know what? Not Jackie Chan. Who the heck? Who do I care about Jackie Chan? It's, uh, uh, you know, I, I met Jack Ma when, uh, the, you know, 1998, the first time he came out to uh, raise money. <laughs> What was that like? He was a very cocky guy, you know. You know, uh-huh. I, I remember I have a coffee with him, and then he was, uh, you know, the, the 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 coffee shop's window actually sees the the building Goldman Sachs uh, office was, and he was telling me, you know, oh, you know, Goldman just uh, agreed to give me five million, and and I didn't even give them a business plan. I want three from you, and then obviously you're not going to get a business plan, right? I was like, what the heck is this guy, you know? What he's talking about? How I'm gonna go back to my office, brings my boss. We're gonna invest three million into this company, and then nobody gonna give a business, and then we're not gonna get a business plan. It's like, what the heck is he talking about? <laughs> so, did you invest with him? No, we didn't. Well, you you missed your opportunity, and then you were probably glad later, right? Uh, yes and no. I mean, what happened actually in between? You know, the five years in the five years after that, that I have coffee with him. This company almost bankrupt twice. And then, you know, I remember that, uh, you know, I was talking to the Goldman people. So we invested eventually privately, you know, in this all famous, uh, infamous uh, uh, Ping An situation, right? We invest in Ping An insurance. And Goldman was an investor in uh, uh, Alibaba and an investor in, uh, in uh, Ping An. They actually want to sell um, Alibaba, but there's no ticker in the market. So they end up selling the, the Ping An share. So, you know, it's who knows, you know, my situation, uh, things happen. So, so you know, it's uh, history play out very differently from anybody can foresee. Well, I know um, you had some connections to the former premier of China. That's who he was, right? Wen Jiabao. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Yeah, I'm kind, of, I'm kind of curious about that because that ties into a lot of the factional stuff that's happening in China. Um, which part of it yeah, you you would like to talk about? Uh, well, just how you got into that, how that connection was created, and you know what that got you or what that cost you in the end. I think what happened. Well, what happened was um, Whitney had a dinner with uh, we call her Auntie Zhang, right, the wife of uh, wife of Wen Jiabao, and. Um, so they struck up uh, the relationship from there. And, and then when Jiabao, I mean, Auntie Zhang, you know, they are, they are not red aristocracy. 
They're not rare aristocrat. They are like, you know, they are common and rise through the rank. So what people in that kind of situation, they don't really have a plant, so to speak. So the rare aristocrat, because they basically grew up in Beijing, you know, they'll go to specific schools. So they have a network from their, 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 their childhood. Their, their relatives are already in the system. So they, are, they have a web of relationship in the system. And Wen Jiabao, you know, his family rise through the rank. You know, I don't, you know, they don't have a clan to speak of. Uh, so at, 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 at the early stage, so you, 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 so we become part of that clan. And then we, you know, we, we, we do business together, we become business partners. So, so that, you know, in a, if actually they, you are uh, like a red aristocrat, they already have a built-in clan, like, you know, from history. It's actually even, it's, it's very difficult, you know, to be involved in those clans. It's a different situation. But yeah, yeah when Jabao's case, you know, yeah, we, what, what happened was uh, we, we built a relationship with the wife and then eventually become a business partner with them. Yeah. And so what what did Wen Jiabao do as your business partner? Like what role did he play in helping you, you know, get deals or, or do developments or? or um... As I, as I you know, talk about in the book, I mean, I actually don't believe uh, he was involved in, uh, in this. And then he's very aware of what his family is actually doing. He's so damn busy, you know, going to uh, going to the office and, um, you know, doing what he's supposed to do. Uh, what happened was, uh, what happened was basically when we get into that kind of situation, then I, I know I have in a book, I, that's a private slide that Air Force, you know, so their family, you know, the Auntie Jan become the Air Force, you know, so you have a fighter jet, you know, flying above you on in the sky. Everybody sort of look at that. Whoa, that's a powerful jet. And then we are the infantrymen, right? We are an infantrymen actually doing the execution on the ground, taking real grounds, right? And that's what happened. I think that's a very lively, uh, vivid, you know, sort of description. I see. So, and so, in exchange for having that that protection mm-hmm. uh, or that that powerful jet flying overhead, mm-hmm. uh, they got part of your business. Yeah. Or they got some money from it. Yeah, they take thirty percent profit in general. Wow, that's substantial. That's. Uh, I think that's the the. the May I say it's at the market going rate for 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 <laughs> you know, situation like that. Which like you know it's just the the that's what the red aristocrat do. I like it. It's the communist party's market rate. Yeah, it's so interesting to me that just you know there's this anecdote you talk about in the book where just having you know, Whitney just having Auntie Jiang sitting. Like if if you're meeting at a restaurant and she's just like sitting there and she doesn't say anything, just knowing that she's there means that she supports the project, which means, you know, the the Wen family supports it. Uh, yeah, it's it's really fascinating. Yeah, I mean that's that's part of the game. You know, I talk about you know we talk about earlier. It's just every move. It's uh, it's it's being uh, uh, read into, and then you need to how to know how to read into the game. I, I mean, she she, doesn't, well, she won't be sitting any dinner with anybody. Why is she there, right? I mean, so people who, who are in the game, just seeing her there, it's like, okay, okay. And then you look at, listen to what she has to say about the next person. You're like, okay, I'm getting hints here. Well, considering that that is how things are done, what what is the significance of when 
Chinese businessmen or Chinese officials try to make those kind of connections to U.S. officials, like Hunter Biden, for instance, or there's a million of those examples. Right. I mean, you know, if you just, you know, look at the Communist Party's uh, operation manual, if those, so to speak, right, and the, and the design and started by Mao, right? Because he said that Mao, you know, Mao, you know, won the war and then, you know, take over China. He said the three weapons, the key three weapons of, uh, uh, in his eye, to to take over China. Number one is United Front. Number two is party apparatus. Number three is military power. Hmm. Number one is United Front. What does that mean? That means capture opinion leaders, capture elites of the society, sway the opinion of the society. So like Hunter Biden's situation is part of the program of elite capturing. And then it's, 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 a, it's, the same, it's, it's the same, still the same operating manual. He hasn't changed. Hmm. It's no accident, you know, like a lot of elites in the West, you know, come out to speak on behalf of China. It's, it's part of the program. Yeah, like people like Larry Fink, uh, CEO of BlackRock, right? I mean, he's very just like China's a great country. Everything's going to be great. Triple, you know, triple your investments. But he's been elite captured. When they arrive in China, they are being presented very, very different China. So that's that's one one side of the game. The other side of the game is they infiltrate all of the all the people around you, and then try use those people to sway your opinion. And don't ever, you know, like a people, a person like Larry Fink, you know, he gets into China, he thinks he's building real relationship with some individuals in China, in the, those people in the know, and then they're feeding him like insider information about China. So he has a real insider knowledge of China. Crap. Those people, I, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, every one of them, after meeting him, go back and write a report. <laughs> oh, that's so dehumanizing. <laughs> uh, that's the theme. Well, I mean, it's it's also just like there's this superiority about it, right? That like, you know, Larry Fink thinks he's going in and getting something, and then like Captain on the other industry. S- and the other side, they're like, this guy, you know, he's it, such it, an idiot. We're yeah. taking advantage of his yeah. greed. He has yeah. no idea. Yeah. It's it's a, it's a complete amount. You, you know, you. you He's being, you know, when he is in China, he's being completely manipulated. You know, this 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 entire environment around him is man-made for him at that particular point in time. And unfortunately, he then has a significant influence over the UN, oh, United yeah, Wall States, Street, Wall Street, U.S. government. Yeah. No, great. Are you are you concerned at all about you know what you said in the book? Like now, the book's out. They obviously pressured you to not publish. Are you concerned about, you know, any retaliation from it? You know, uh, uh, I mean, a, a, a journalist uh, the other day, you know, looked at me and then said, you know, you and, t- and tell me that, you know, you'll be a mock man for the CCP for the rest of your life, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I am prepared for it when I decide to publish it, but to have it say it in your face, it's just... You know, it, it still sends a chill down my spine. Um, it, it, well, and then the other thing I have to say is, you know, 
a party stating and lock up a woman for four years in a dark cell is capable of all evils. Well, it was a, a very brave thing you did to to publish the book. The book is Red Roulette. I'll put a link in the description below. Be sure to check it out. It's fascinating. Desmond, thank you so much for joining us today and hope to have you on again sometime soon. Yeah, yeah. I will, I will. Let me know. Let me know. Well, I really learned a lot from that interview and, and especially his book. For instance, I always thought it was pronounced roulette. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that, that's why you never want any money uh, at the roulette wheel. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. go to Vegas and ask for the roulette table and people would. Yeah. And apparently it's it's not pronounced ballot. It's ballet. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it was, uh, I mean, that's a really fascinating insight into business because the like 99% of people who are doing business in China, maybe 100% of them and 99% of people who've left still won't tell you what it's really like because there's so much incentive to like just keep that stuff secret. Well, yeah. I mean, I think on one hand, it's, you know, you've probably had to do some things you're not especially proud of. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, or, you know, you're worried that whatever you do, did or say could come back they could they could still definitely go after you even if you're outside china right i mean clearly they have a tendency to make people disappear who are close to you yeah well i think that's interesting that like obviously they're a little touchy about this if her uh, his ex-wife suddenly reappeared and just was like please don't publish the book yeah well i admire his courage for just publishing it anyway knowing that there could be a risk to, to her or to himself. But of course, he's right because like, if you give in to what the party wants, you're probably not going to win in the end. Yeah, I mean, publishing it definitely is better for his wife yes. than not publishing it. Right, I mean, yeah. always always shine a light in the darkness, uh, even if, you know, the bad guys don't want you to do it. Yeah, I mean, I think, it, you know, it's it's super interesting and you know, I like how he was like, you know, I'm not really ashamed of anything I've done. I'm willing to put it out there yeah. and kind of like tell the real story. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, it's, it's, it's great that there is now a book like this that's been published. It's out in the public record. Mm -hmm. So we definitely recommend that you should check it out if you have the chance. Uh, we are putting a link in the description below. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's finally the insider's story that we've been wanting to hear about how business is actually done in China. So once again, thanks for watching. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Chang. And I'm Matt Ganesda. We'll see you next time.